This program is produced using the resources of Public Media Network in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Learn more at publicmedianet.org. Thanks so much for listening to the show. Take a minute right now to hit that subscribe button so you always get a notification when we post a new episode. Welcome to Connecting Communities. Thanks so much for joining us again. We are so excited for today's episode and talking about work that is happening in Kalamazoo, different people and groups who are taking action on environmental issues. And one of the Kalamazoo celebrities uh, is here today in the studio with us, Tom Small. Tom is an activist who has done so much work with founding um, the Kalamazoo chapter of Wild Ones. You've written books. You um, have taught at Western. Yes. You have really done a lot. I think you said 30 years was how long you've been doing this work. 30 plus years? That would be on like the lowest Well, estimation. Yeah, um, 30 plus years, more or less 30 years since I retired from teaching, or at least stopped getting paid for doing it. <laughs> I'm still doing it, but uh, more informally and with groups of activists. So yeah, about 30 years. So tell me more about Wild Ones. Um, tell me what it is that they're about. Well, it's Wild Ones, native plants, natural landscapes. We are advocates for, promoters of, establishers of native plants. We encourage people to do native plants and to do natural landscaping. And we founded the local chapter of uh, Wild Ones, the Kalamazoo area chapter, in 1999. So we're, well, next year we're coming up on our 25th anniversary. And things have, have really developed uh, since then, nationally and, and, and locally. We're a local chapter. There are, I believe, at last count, 78 uh, chapters around the country, 11 chapters in the state of Michigan. I think we were the, the third chapter to get established. And <laughs> membership, uh, individual and household membership, is, has really taken off in the last, I'd say, three to four years. And, and that's been very encouraging to me because I feel as if I got it started, I helped to foster it, I enabled it to do what it's doing, and I've been able to kind of walk away from it and let it happen and to see it grow. And we have about 200 local households that are, that are members and about, uh, I think at last count, 9,000 household members across the country in 32 states. And I know that you do programming that is open to non-members. Um, you were telling me that you had 2,000 listeners at your recent <laughs> Zoom program? Yeah, yeah. We did two solely Zoom programs at the beginning of the year because, you know, we can't count on good weather for a, an in-person program. And... We had uh, 
2,000 people tune in from really all across the country and even a couple of foreign countries. So word is getting out and we're doing a little better job with publicity than we did at, at first. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm really encouraged about what's happening. And the, the idea that we have to do something about species extinction and the sixth great mass extinction of species, and in particular, the loss, and there's where we concentrate, wild ones, native plants. The, the loss of native plants, the loss of native pollinators, the loss of native bees, birds, uh, everything is in decline, almost everything, and some of it is, is really in crisis situation, and everybody has to pitch in and do something to try to sustain, to try to enhance habitat for these creatures because we've taken over their habitats to such a great extent and feel that we have to control everything, that we have to have this movement nationally, internationally, globally to try to get back, to try to reestablish some of the plants for which these other species evolved and on which they are dependent and which are vanishing. So it's a matter of individual and family and neighborhood and community action, and that's what we try to foster. This is something that you, cha you help change in the city that has had a lasting impact, and that's the, the lawn ordinance uh, with yep. allowing for, you know, can do you kind of want to talk just so people know what you, how that unfolded? Well, we, we started trying to change the weed ordinance uh, back, you know, 25, 30 years ago because a friend of ours was uh, being uh, harassed by neighbors for allowing, you know, long plants in the front yard. Uh, people regarded those as weeds. And so we tried to uh, get the uh, city, the planning commission, the city commission to uh, allow natural landscaping. And it was a struggle for quite a while because the weed ordinance said you can't have anything growing over 18 inches and you can't allow grass to go to seed uh, and there are all kinds of restrictions as to what you can have and what you can't do on your own private property in your yard. And so I got onto the city's environmental concerns committee and we started a campaign and we uh, persuaded some people on the planning commission that this was a pretty good idea. So they came out with a kind of guide to natural landscaping and it was just awful. It, it was terrible. And they included it as part of the, uh, uh, the nuisance ordinance so that growing the wrong things in your yard was kind of classified with peeping in windows and spitting on sidewalks and other uh, nasty things that people do. 
And we said, you know, this is, this is not the way to promote natural <laughs> landscaping. So we started writing some material and it went into a file someplace. And nothing more much came of it. And about a year later, a new guy came into the office of the uh, uh, planning commission and he looked at this stuff and he said, oh, hey, what's, what's this stuff? Well, shouldn't we be doing something about that? And we started talking to him and he said, let's do a natural landscaping guide and you guys write it. This looks like pretty good stuff. So we did. And they finally accepted it and it got approved then. And we started working on the weed ordinance itself within the Environmental Concerns Committee and got it into the Planning Commission and they accepted it and then the City Commission. And it was really about a three or four year process before we finally got an ordinance that said, you can grow native plants and they can exceed 18 inches in height. And the key is whether you're maintaining it. And that's the only key that is really significant in the Kalamazoo weed ordinance. You can have natural landscaping, you can have native plants, but you have to maintain them. You just can't let something happen, something grow, and that's, that's not it. Uh, and we haven't had any trouble with that. Everybody seems surprised down in the planning commission and the, the uh, inspectors that you know, as long as there's a kind of a plan and it's obvious that people are maintaining these native plants, that's okay. We've had no trouble. And our yard, my yard in particular, my wife's in my yard, it's pretty wild. But we've had only one complaint ever. And an inspector came out and said, well, you need to cut down right here on the corner. And I said, oh, but we provide seed to the city for their projects. He finally, after we talked for a little while, said, uh, okay, well, mm, do what you can. And that was the last I ever heard of it. So I think we've succeeded in establishing the idea that people can do this, that it's important that they do it, that it's important we do it as a community. That's what I wanted to hear you say because that one change, think about how much biodiversity you've added to Kalamazoo, how much pollinator habitat, how much food for birds, all of that because some people were passionate about an idea and committed enough to see it through for several years. So that's, yeah. that's what I hope this whole podcast project inspires other people to do. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. And as I said, I'm, I'm really encouraged by how it's taking hold. It's taken a few years. The first uh, 10 years of the chapter, it grew suddenly up to about 150 households. And then it kind of declined. People lost uh, some of the original enthusiasm. And we weren't really recruiting very many new members. But now in the last three to five years, boy, things have really taken off. And I'm, I'm really encouraged and it's becoming very much a community thing, and the, uh, the planning commission is behind it. It's part of Imagine Kalamazoo and the city's plan. 
It's part of our neighborhood plan. It's part of other neighborhood plans. It's, it's really taken off and we have a good website for the Kalamazoo area wild ones and there's a national website with lots of information and anybody can uh, join in this movement. It's absolutely essential, as you say, for the, the pollinators, the, the creatures, the insects, the birds that we depend upon to pollinate our plants, including our crop plants, not just our flowering kind of decorative plants. Yeah, we uh, touched on this in another episode that farmers are shipping pollinators mm -hmm. around the country to pollinate our crops. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's, there's actions that we can take as a community, as a state, as a nation to um, help improve that. And I think um, that your combination of um, systemic change and supporting individual actions um, is really awesome and ties into what mm -hmm. comes up on the podcast all the time. Um, is that we have to have support from legislation, we have to have support from, um, if not buy-in, then we have to have regulations for our corporations, and that there is individual responsibility, but we can't do it on that alone. Well, there is individual responsibility, but it sure does help if we've got a community of interaction. And I and the rest of Wild Ones like to think of the community as a very, very broad community. It's not just a community of neighborhood human beings. It's a community of the creatures that we all live with and that we're all a part of and that we all depend on in so many ways. And there are, there are kindred. We are all part of a family. We're all part of a community. We're all part of wild ones. We're all part of the natural fullness of being community and its interactions, its interconnections. Everything is connected to everything else. And what I do and what you do and what we all do as persons and as members of a community is vitally important. Aldo Leopold, I really, what he said about the land ethic is, is, so, is so vitally important, yes. I'm gonna read what what he said, there? what yeah. he said about the about. land ethic, that we are not conquerors. We have thought of ourselves for so often as conquerors of the land, as in charge here. And we're the ones who say what goes and what stays and how we do it. But if we're to really have an ethic that's based upon the land, that's based upon the water, then we have to stop thinking of ourselves as conquerors and start thinking of ourselves as members and citizens 
of community. And the community includes everyone in the words of the Lakota. Metakuya Oyasin. We are all one. Or another translation of that is all our relations. We are all related. We're all kin, kindred. We're all, in a very real sense, persons. And I like to think of those plants as persons. They have an intelligence, they have a being of their own, they have a language of their own, they have interconnections of their own. We're interdependent with them and we're all related to one another. So it's that community that I try to think in terms of and that I think Wild Ones is, is committed to. You know, yeah, those, those bees that do the pollination that are trucked all around the country to do that pollination, trucked to California to pollinate, to, uh, pollinate the uh, almond trees so that we can have almond milk on our cereal in the breakfast, in, for breakfast. Um, those aren't even native bees. And they're in trouble, they're in deep trouble. And the native bees that actually do more pollination and more efficiently than those non-native uh, bees are in an even deeper trouble, deeper trouble. Yeah. Tom, I had a suspicion that you might um, bring in Leopold. So I brought, this is probably my favorite book I've ever read, yeah. Sand County Almanac by Eldo yep. Leopold. And I had made some marks here just so we could hit this because I thought it'd come up. And so just a, just a couple little things here. Yeah, so when, when godlike Odysseus returned from the wars in Troy, he hanged all on one rope a dozen slave girls of his household whom he suspected of misbehavior during his absence. This hanging involved no question of propriety. The girls were property. The disposal of property was then, as now, a matter of expediency, not right and wrong. So that's, that's where he starts. And then he takes it to uh, an ethic philosophically is a differentiation of social from anti-social conduct. And he says, there is yet no ethic dealing with man's relationship to land and to animals and plants which grow upon it. So the land ethic, which Tom was talking about, is this idea that our ethical relationship, which means I treat you like a human, it's even in our language. Yeah. You know, it's, it's instead of I treat you as though you have a right to exist. And that's what Leopold argues is that as society evolves, you know, we go from a point where we're comfortable with owning slaves because they have a different skin color or they have a different religion so they're other they're not human in our yeah. landscape yeah. you know we get past that and we say okay all humans but still then we have problems with respecting the rights of women of people who are LGBTQ still people with different religions or different skin colors face this issue of where does our ethical circle extend to yeah. and Leopold's arguing it should encompass every single human, but it also is a responsibility to
to the land and to the plants and the animals and the birds and the bees and everything else. Uh, so I think that that's a great point. And the mantra to live by that Leopold, uh, one of his quotes, a thing is right when it tends to preserve the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community is wrong when it tends otherwise. So think about that. Integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community. If our actions hold up to that standard, we're creating a better planet for our neighbors, whether they be cardinals and goldfinches <laughs> or humans. Well, integrity is wholeness and fullness. Right. Stability? Uh, I don't think nature is ever stable. So some people want to substitute resilient mm. for stable. Mm -hmm. Ability to absorb a shock, a stress, and to come back from that stress. To come through more or less intact, or at least simplified in such a way as to be in some ways better than before the stress and the shock. And we're subject to a lot of shocks these days and a lot of instability. And that's why broadening that community, that's why fostering those native plants that's why ensuring that we can carry through this bottleneck that we're going to go through, that we are going through, and all these shocks and stresses that we're going through, all this conflict that we're going through, that's the only way to ensure that we're going to be bringing other creatures and enough of the community to have integrity and beauty and to be resilient. It is absolutely crucial that we be aware of where we are and what's happening to us and what we need to do as individuals and as a community and to enlarge that sense of community. To preserve and sustain, and maybe even to some extent enhance what we have left, even in the midst of this sixth great mass extinction, where we've lost, some people say, up to 75% of the biomass of insects worldwide. There aren't any very good figures but the figures that we've got suggest that that's the worst-case scenario and it's not too far from what is probably the actuality. 50% uh, of bird species. Local populations way down. Biomass of all creatures way down. Uh, we're one of the few species that's growing. And that's part of the problem. So that's where we are. And that's why we need to find 
reasons for hope and reasons for action. And that's what Wild Ones and other organizations are trying to do. And the organizations that you work with are trying to do. And we're all, in a sense, partners in that, trying to recover what we've lost. Um, you, you, you talked a little bit, David, about uh, personality, but the kind of persons regarding other creatures, including other human beings, as full persons, having their own fullness of being, their own distinctive character, their own languages, their own being, their own agency. I think we are the inheritors and the victims of a uh, kind of sense of exclusivity that we are the species, the dominant species, and we're the special species. We're different. And we're at the top. And um, we're separate from the rest of the creation in Cartesian terms because we think and because we are the only fully uh, independent species independent from mere instinct. And more and more we're learning now, a little late, what the indigenous peoples knew all along, that things are alive. Things that we regarded as inanimate and dead really have lives of their own and are alive, have in a sense personhood. And you talk about rights. One of the things that really encourages me is the rights of nature movement. And it's a global movement. And the US is participating, but we're way behind in some ways. Um, some South American countries are, are, are way ahead of us in this respect. The uh, Colombian Superior Court has declared the Rio Atrato a person, a legally constituted person with rights in court and rights to exist to thrive, to evolve, and to regenerate herself. And not an it, but a herself. Part of the kind of great mother earth as a self, as a person with an integrity, uh, a wholeness, a fullness, an interconnectedness. So, in the U.S., for instance, the, uh, the Ponca Nation in Oklahoma has declared the Arkansas and the uh, Salt Fork Rivers as persons, legal persons, with rights, having rights, being persons in their own. And they sent a delegation to New Zealand to figure out how the, the Maori, the uh, Wanganui Iwi, managed to persuade the New Zealand legislature to declare the Whanganui River a person with rights, uh, full rights to exist and to prosper and to be and to be free, to flow 
and to evolve and to change and to follow its own course rather than the channeled, uh, straight, narrow course that we try to confine our rivers to. There are only 2% of the rivers in this country that are still free-flowing, 2%. Uh, only 0.1% or less of native prairie still exists. Native savanna, native woodland, uh, in the sense of, you know, that hasn't been clear-cut and that is still old growth. Very small percentage of that left. Hardly any in the state of Michigan. We've wiped out a lot and we have to recognize that it has a right to exist. And we have to kind of hook into this national and international movement that in a sense, a real sense, the Native American nations are leading us to. They're trying to get back to their kind of original instructions and their sense of the togetherness of all beings, of all the members of the community. And uh, they're very much in sympathy with Aldo Leopold and, and the notion of the land ethic. Um, I know there's a, a uh, Native American uh, uh, lawyer, legal authority, who, who really kind of hooks into, in this rights of nature movement, really hooks into Aldo Leopold and says, you know, we've got to follow his lead, and we have to follow the lead of the nations among us, including the Anishinaabe right here in Michigan, mm -hmm. uh, who, are, who are leading us in these directions. That's the context in which I like to see the, the wild ones, that movement. It's not just a kind of a native plant movement. Oh, these are good plants, you know. It's a, it's a movement that's part of a really broad global movement to reestablish or reaffirm or recover a relationship with nature that we've lost and a sense of kindred with the other beings that are part of the whole community of life with its integrity, stability, or resilience, and beauty, because it's beautiful. Native plants are so beautiful. <laughs> I, just, I just find them so amazing. And they're the ones that evolved with us here in Michigan and before us, before we ever arrived. Um, they're so well adapted that they can pretty well get along without us. Lawn, turf grass can't. It's dependent absolutely upon us for its continued existence because it's not native and it's not adapted to this climate. We have to keep it going with fertilizer, with water, with pesticides. 
uh, with mowing because of the city ordinance. Uh, and it takes up immense amounts of our time and our energy and our money. And here are these native plants saying, you know, hey, we can do that and we don't need much help. If you plant us and help us to get started, we can do it. We're going to put down roots eight, ten feet. If there's water down there, we'll find it. Don't worry about it. Before we get out too far away from you, I want to go back. You were talking about the, the rights of nature movement. Yeah. So for people who are interested in that topic, there is a good national organization. Actually, they, they do international work. CELDF, Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund. Yeah. So uh, if you're interested in that rights of, of, of nature movement, the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund does do some really good work. And, and like Tom was mentioned, it's not, it's not antithetical to American law. Uh, no. The, the, the city of Pittsburgh actually has put into their city charter uh, leg, uh, language that enshrines rights of nature. So, I mean, this is Pittsburgh, people. I mean, this is a city that its whole identity is about smokestacks from steel smelters. If they can protect nature there... Yeah, you know, we can do it anywhere. And you mentioned um, the rivers, the uh, Lake Erie. Has yeah, been, city of Toledo. Yeah, Toledo city decided Toledo. that Lake Erie is a person and has rights as a person. It, uh, that's that's run into some legal trouble, but but, but we it's very significant that they're doing that. So and the CALDF. I'm glad you mentioned it yeah. because if you hadn't, I would. So, but just one thing before, because this is this is I think is really important. The United States is very comfortable with corporations being considered legally people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think we need to consider living things as people before we consider corporations that way. We have first to consider that they are, in fact, alive, right. that they have agency, that they have intelligence of their own, and that they have languages of their own. And, you know, the Native Americans, it's not just a myth that in ancient times the other creatures, including the plants, could speak to us and we could understand them and we could speak to them and they would understand us. That's still possible. But we have, as Robin Wall Kimmerer tells us, as Jeff Grignon of the Menominee Nation tells us, as so many tell us, we have lost the language. We can't hear it any longer. But it's still there and we can recover it. We can learn if we listen and we pay attention to what these plants and these creatures are telling us and what they're saying and what they need and what they want. And we can't make all the decisions. We're not really in charge. One of the kind of telling experiences for me was going to a lecture at Western by Dr. Matthew Fletcher, an Anishinaabe uh, lawyer and judge and an MSU professor. And I was already very interested in the personhood of rivers and 
what was happening in New Zealand and what was beginning to happen in South America. And he was talking about uh, stories and Anishinaabe stories and um, uh, how important stories are. And so I went up afterwards to talk to him and I, I, I said, what do you think about this, this rights of nature movement and the, the personhood of, of rivers? And he looked at me and he said, the important thing to understand about a river is that it can kill you. And I thought, oh, that's not the response I expected. <laughs> but then I started back thinking about the stories that he was telling and every story that he told from Anishinaabe heritage, culture, had to do with relationship between human beings and more than human beings and how we weren't superior. That in fact, in many ways, they are superior. That they know things we don't and they can do things that we can't do and they can communicate in so many different ways that we don't understand. And we're not in control of them. We think we are. The culture still tells us that we're in control here but the evidence increasingly is that we're not. We're subject to all these catastrophes, things out of control, rivers out of control, out of our control anyway. Uh, storms out of our control. And so I thought about that. And I've been thinking about that ever since he said that, which was several years ago. The important thing to know about a river is that it can kill you, that it has power, that it has agency. And that, you know, our little levees aren't the final answer to where that river is going to go and what it's going to do. Uh, it has a will, an agency of its own, and it will seek its way. Um, I also remember reading John McPhee's Control of Nature. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, great, great book. book. About, the about, the, about the Mississippi yeah. River and how uh, we're spending all of this time and money and energy keeping the Mississippi in its channel when what it really wants to do is move about 100 miles west. And uh, what we're doing there in the Atchafalaya is buying time. It's going to happen. Sooner or later, it will happen. Uh, the river has a will of its own, and we need to know that. We need to understand that. Yes, we need to act in our own well-being, our own uh, behalf. But we have to include the rest of the community or we're, we're, we're kind of done for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Money can't, we can't build the earth out of money, you know, um, and thinking about how, I was thinking we're not the top of the food chain because nothing is eating us, but 
then I was like, oh, the sinkholes and the rivers. Viruses. And, yeah, and, I mean, they, we could get eaten, absolutely. Yeah, I was thinking the Carl Sagan quote, uh, was it we're all made out of the the stuff of stars or something yeah. along those yeah. lines? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's we're all stardust. Yeah. yeah. So this is a totally a total mind shift, you know. I mean, what you're talking about, and there are really great practical examples of this um, this mind shift happening in communities, in cities, in countries, and um, and that is great. Um, I'm wondering what can families do? What can individuals do here in Kalamazoo? How can we adopt this? And more than just adopt this way of thinking, which is important, but also take action on it. Yeah. Well, uh, on the one hand, we can we can work with large kind of international organizations, such as the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund, and you know go to their website, go to the National Wild Ones website, learn what's going on elsewhere, learn what these movements are trying to accomplish and who's trying to accomplish it and who's working with whom. Um, go to the Women and Water website uh, to learn what women are doing, particularly, of course, women from Native nations, in trying to bring about this kind of cultural shift, this shift of mindset away from the idea that we're in control here, that we are the dominant species and everything must happen according to what our needs and our wants and our desires are, are what our culture tells us. You know, Mao Zedong said, uh, when we say that the river must bend to our will, the river must bend to our will. And we still think uh, that way. The Chinese are the greatest dam builders in the world uh, at the moment, along with uh, India. And we're beginning to dismantle the dams and to uh, even take down a few of the levees here in the U.S., but we've got a long way to go. And people need to be aware of that, but they also need to be aware of, of what's being done in a, in a very simple, practical, household way. And our landscapes, our yards, are one of those ways. Doug Tallamy, uh, his book, Bringing Nature Home, is kind of a, a basic text uh, for us in Wild Ones. And uh, 
he's established an organization called Homegrown National Park. There just isn't enough undisturbed land left to support the species and to bring them back from their declines. So we in the cities, and more and more of us will be living in the cities, we in the cities are going to have to do it. And we're going to have to do it on our own properties. And we're going to have to stop regarding those as private sacrosanct properties. And in a sense, as part of a commons, or at least part of a national park, a homegrown national park that's open to all, that's open to all the other than human, the, in some respects, more than human species that we're part of the community with. Um, how do we do that? Well, uh, take a look at the website, Homegrown National Park. Take a look at the National Wild Ones website. Take a look at the Kalamazoo Area Wild Ones website. It doesn't matter, well it does matter, but it doesn't matter what you do to get started. You can get started on a, you know, five foot by five foot plot and you can make a difference. You can begin to make a difference because if enough of us make that much of a difference, then we begin to get some interconnectivity and some pathways and some corridors and some patches. And it doesn't matter whether you do exactly the same thing as your neighbor does. In fact, it's probably important that you don't do exactly the same thing. That you begin to provide for some diversity and that you begin to reestablish the soil which is in dire trouble. Um, most of our topsoil, well, 50% of our topsoil has already gone down the Mississippi and the other uh, channels. And that's even affecting our croplands. The most dire predictions I've seen is that we have enough topsoil, enough good soil to last us about another 60 to 100 years of harvests. And then that's done. We can't do that anymore. And where do we begin? Well, we begin by supporting farmers who are using organic methods, regenerative farming that regenerates the soil rather than depleting it and mining it. And we do the same in our households. We do the same with our home soil, with our landscape. We regenerate that soil, we regenerate the plants, we regenerate the pollinators, we regenerate the insects, and we regenerate the birds that we love, who feed their young insects, nothing but insects. And it takes a thousand caterpillars, roughly, to raise one batch of chickadee fledglings. One thousand caterpillars. If you're eliminating caterpillars from your yard, you're eliminating chickadees. And if you love chickadees, you better love caterpillars and you better have some plants that caterpillars feed on and you better go out and say, oh, look, there's a hole in that leaf. A caterpillar ate that. Isn't that wonderful? That's part of the picture. That's part of the process. 
That's part of how things work. And we want some kind of, you know, nice, neat, pristine landscape where everything looks beautiful and nothing gets eaten up. Well, that's part of the problem. And you can be part of the solution rather than part of the problem, even if you just begin. And I don't recommend all of a sudden transforming your entire yard into a prairie or a savanna. Uh, you know, you're probably going to work yourself right out of the mood to do it. Do it a little at a time, but get started. And uh, that's why we're here. That's why Wild Ones is here. That's why all these other organizations are here on the local level to get you started. If you want to see more about the context, go look at the, what the Ponca are doing in Oklahoma. Go look at what CEL is doing, C-E-L-D-F is doing. They're the ones who advised the Ecuadorian government about putting rights of nature into the national constitution. Mm -hmm. So they're working on an international level. And they're working on a national level and they're working with very local communities, small communities here, there, elsewhere. How do we reestablish community agency where a community is responsible for its own life instead of just kind of depending upon the culture to uh, direct it? And how do we as citizens, as members of the community, full citizens of it, really take responsibility for what we belong to, the community of, of, of life, the great circle of, of, of life. Uh, you know, I think we're all familiar to some extent with the uh, Standing Rock and the defense of, of, of water there, Maniwakoni, water is life. Do we know what that means? Water to the Lakota, that's the original element that's the element of creation itself. And that's not very far from Christian belief. In the first verses of the Bible, God moved upon the face of the waters. The waters had a face, and the Spirit moved upon them, and that was even before God said, let there be light. There was no light yet when that happened on the face of the waters. So all religions have that sense of water as an original element, maniwekone, water is life. And life is that great circle of, of, of life, not just, you know, well, I'm 70% water, of my body. Uh, actually, you're more than that. In terms of the number of molecules in your body, you're 99% water. You're 70% water by, by weight, 99% by number of molecules, and in form, you're 100%. Because water moves in certain ways, in vortices, in spirals, in folding back upon itself. And if you think about the development of a human embryo, that's how it develops. 
and your bones even have a spiral twist to them, many of them, because the water moved in that way. So, you know, we're part of that wonderful, amazing stuff, life and the circle of life. Um, and the soil, the earth itself, all the elements, the sacred underground, in the, in the words of the Menominee, uh, uh, let me see, I'll, I'll mispronounce this, Anamatamek uh, Winskar, the sacred underground, the interconnectivity of everything within the soil, uh, all connected by the fungal hyphae, the threads of mycene, or of, of uh, uh, the, the fungi that interconnect all the roots of the trees and all the roots of the plants and through which they communicate with one another. Uh, sending nourishment back and forth where it's needed and where the mother trees foster the young and withhold and say, well, it's not time for you to grow yet. You, you don't have any space to grow in. And so that youngster may be sitting there for decades, maybe even centuries, with hardly any growth. And then finally a tree falls over here and the mother tree says, it's time. Go, go for it. They, they, that's an amazing community of life. So as we're, we're, we're getting clear to, or, or close to the end, I want to connect some of the things you were saying because we talked about some of the, the actions you were talking about there. And I just want to tie it to some of the other guests we've had because there's so many things that we've talked about already that tie into this in ways for people. To get, like we had Southwest Michigan Land Conservancy. And one of the things they really talked about was, like you're saying, we have to practice this stewardship and this, this conservation on private lands because that is a, a big need, particularly in the type of structure we have in Michigan. Then yeah. uh, we had Friends of Wood Lake, what they've done in, in, in a public setting, but it's a neighborhood base. And that's the other thing. So this past year when we did Earth Day, we partnered really closely with three neighborhood associations, the Oakwood neighborhood, yeah. Vine neighborhood, and um, um, Edison. And those neighborhood associations, all three of them, have really amazing projects for sustainability, native plants, um, food security, environmental health. Yeah. All for, and the, what I want to stress is that if people want to get involved, get involved with, if, if you're in a neighborhood with a neighbor association, that's a really good way that you can Absolutely. impact the, a, an area in a really positive sense. And it, it's not like there's this big election and you raise money and go and campaign. It's you volunteer and neighborhood boards aren't glamorous. I'm on my neighborhood association board and it's not always fun. Um, yeah. But you can do good things because you want to show up and put in work. And I think that that's the kind of thing we're looking for. Oh, and um, the Kalamazoo Earth Day uh, Festival is, is, an, is a year-round organization. So uh, 
you can always follow the, the website and the socials. Um, website's easy, calmsuearthday.com. And we'll always have different ways for people to get involved, connections to different organizations. So that's a way that you, if you, you know, want to know more about some of Tom's work or some of the Wild Ones' work, you can always reach out through the website and we can make sure people get connected easy. Yeah. Absolutely. And our meetings, uh, as you suggested at the beginning, are open to everybody. You don't have to be a member. And we have meetings now at the Portage District Library uh, every month, and you can get the full schedule of our face-to-face -face meetings, our Zoom meetings, our field trips, uh, if you go to the Kalamazoo Area Wild Ones website. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here, Tom. It was uh, such a gift. Thank you so much for um, telling us all about what you've got going on. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, and, and thanks. Blessings. Uh, gratitude is a very important part of our, of our, of our lives. And uh, so I'm grateful to all of you and all you're doing and to the Earth Day Committee and to, I've been involved in, in so many Earth Days in the past and helped to organize some of them and I, I, I know how important that, that work is and that heritage, that tradition, that sense of community and, and, and continuity. Neighborhood, Earth Day, Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund, Native American Nations. We need all of those contexts, but we also need the individual, and we need, as you suggested, David, a kind of culture shift when it comes to our sense of private property, that it is, has to be, in a very real sense, a kind of a commons, open to the whole community. Uh, yeah, you have to have some privacy of your own, but welcome as much, of you, as, much as you can of the rest of that community of creatures that we're so interdependent with. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.